Headliner Radio, the creative voice. Okay, I'm very happy to welcome composer, producer and pianist Neil Cowley to Headliner Radio. Hello, Neil, how are you? I'm fine, how are you? Yes, very well, thanks. Um, yeah, where are you speaking to us from today? I'm in my uh, studio in uh, Chiswick in West London. Oh, awesome. Really? So you are back in the UK now. Were you living in Germany for a while? No, I, I spent um, I spent periods of time there um, back and forth because obviously the record I made was um, quite heavily recorded and mixed and conceived of in Berlin with my uh, good friend Greg Freeman who produced and engineered and everything else uh, and had the patience of a saint. So I spent long periods in Berlin Um but no, I'm always, uh, I always come back home. I've always been here in some form or another in the UK. Yeah, no, amazing. So before we dive deep into that, so in terms of introducing you, so you're certainly not new to the music industry by any stretch of the imagination. Were you something of a child prodigy? Is that fair to say when you were a kid? Or? I suppose it is fair to say. It's probably not fair for me to say it, but um, <laughs> uh, yes, that was, that, that's a phrase I heard. Uh, and I suppose looking back on it objectively, because you have no concept of these things at the time, but looking back at it, I, I was sort of, what was I doing? I was playing, I, well, I was playing concert halls on the South Bank with orchestras aged 10 or 11. And it was really mm. down to my rather marvelous, um, piano, well, a couple of piano teachers actually. My, Mr. Eric Stevenson, um, was a man on something of a crusade to try and find talent where, classical music wouldn't otherwise find it so he went into my grotty little borough of Hillingdon Hayes in Middlesex where I was brought up and um, heard about this kid who was playing hymns in in uh, assembly because there were no teachers to play piano and uh, and that was me obviously and then he, he came along and, and spied me and went okay yeah so he approached my he approached my mother and he said uh, I'll teach the boy um, and I won't take any money and my aim is to get him into the Royal Academy. So this kid from the wrong side of the tracks um, was, uh, you know, nurtured into um, maybe proving something of a point. I heard something similar about Albert Finney, the actor, because he was supposedly the last of the... Um, there was something of an experiment within acting, I think, where they sort of found kids from the wrong side of the track and and uh, they nurtured them for RADA, and I believe Albert Finney went along a similar tip. So, um, yeah, I'm, I was very, I was very blessed with that opportunity. And then when I when I got there, I met a lady called Miss Jean Anderson. When I got to the academy, that was, and uh, she took me from there. And then I went back to my roots, rebelled terribly, and went, nah, nah, I'm not having all of this classical music lark. I want to get into um, all this amazing um, other music that's being introduced to me. So that's where it went wrong, stroke right from that moment when I was about thirteen or fourteen. Yeah. So was that all a positive experience? Because I guess when kids become pop stars around that age, things go kind of very bad later. Well, on. yeah, they they went bad. They went quite bad between myself and my mum because this is not what she envisaged at all. I mean, as far as she was concerned, I was throwing up an incredible opportunity, and I can totally understand that. I I felt I knew my own mind, and I wanted to. Um, mm. I, I could see another path for me. Um, and she essentially sort of washed her hands of me. She tried every trick in the book to trick me into into feeling guilty or feeling bad or seeing the opportunity that I was, inverted commas, wasting. 
So, yeah, you end up playing for Zero Seven and Gabrielle. Was this sort of piano or sort of more keyboards and synths? Or? Um, well, my speci- I suppose my speciality in the in the in the um, in the in that period of time was Fender Rhodes, and uh, um, uh, so yeah, electronic keyboards, vintage sounding keyboards, and and the lads at Zero Seven um, knew me from before from that kind of stuff. They, they one of the guys, Henry, had been searching me out. He, he'd worked with me before, and he'd made this album, the Zero Seven Simple Things album, and he said, and and he was looking for me because he wanted me to play it live for him with him. Um, and he convinced me to come and do it. And I did that for about a year, but I wasn't, I was really keen on, um, on uh, pursuing my own path. So it was, uh, it was a temporary thing. And eventually I lost my patience with sort of playing other people's stuff. And I mean, it was great stuff and Henry's lovely and Sam were lovely. They were lovely people, but I wanted to go and once again, pursue my own path. So I, um, I, I sort of resigned and then went off on pretty much after that, that was, that was, that was me. Then I was just doing my own thing from then on really. Yeah. So it's like this constant rebellion. It seems like rebelling against being a classical <laughs> pianist and then sacking off the, um, being a touring player, I suppose. Yeah. Then... I'm, I, yeah, I'm, I'm never, I'm never happy. I'm never comfortable. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's, it's an outrage really. I mean, when I think of the things that have been put on my lap and I've gone, no, 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 I'll do it for a bit. Then no, and I'm bored of that. I mean, I think it's, it's obviously a, some sort of genetic trait. I can't, I can't um, remove from myself, um, but there is. I think the constant has been this this quest to tread my own, you know, plough my own furrow. Really, I think that that has at least been constant, um, for better or for worse. Sometimes I definitely think it's for worse. Sometimes when I'm sitting there and it's all very quiet on the Western Front and there's nothing going on, or there's mm. you know, there's a there's a there's an album to be made and I'm on my own and it's those early early days. I think, what on earth am I doing? But um, largely speaking I, I mean this is me now I, I just have to now I, I have to keep going on this path uh, and I'm very dogmatic about it like I refuse to have generally speaking I refuse to have vocals I refuse I, I insist on making my voice my my piano I insist on on making it um, convey something emotionally without the aid of vocals we're at most of the time 99.9% of the time that's what my that's what my quest seems to be um so there are some constants, but yeah, a lot of, a lot of, um, fidgeting. No, yeah, of course. Um, so when, when did Adele come into the picture? It's so interesting to listen to your new album and then Adele, it's a very interesting contrast there. Well, I suppose, yeah, but that, you know, that, again, that's the thing, you know, the, the Adele thing was a, was a couple of afternoons in my life, which of course resulted in something that went on for, became huge multinational success and went on and on and on. I, I was, again, I was, I was, I'd washed my hands of playing on other people's stuff. It was only because a friend of a friend who was managing a producer called Jim Abbott got in touch and said, would you, there's a, there's a girl going into the studio on, um, on Monday and it's kind of her first recording and she, and, uh, her piano players decided to sort of quit the band and would you, would you come and help out? And so I, I, I agreed, went and helped out and, uh, yeah, it, it got done very quickly. Uh, most of the stuff I did with her were one take wonders, um, because we seemed to have a sort of a, like an empathy, I think, or at least a connection musically. It was very, she was very quick. I was very quick. Um, and the next thing I knew is I couldn't go in a restaurant anywhere without hearing myself. And that was, um, that was, for, <laughs> has been forever since. It's one of the most ridiculously successful albums of all time. Um, but yeah, yeah you know, it, it equates to about, five hours of my life but there you go that's uh <laughs> that's pop yeah. for you 
So just for the context, that was her album 21. Well, 19, the, the first one I did was 19, and then I did 21 as well. As part, oh, sure. my, like uh, parts of. So I did Hometown Glory and Make You Feel My Love and Rolling in the Deep and um, that end of things um, in the 2008, 9s, 10s, 11s, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, ridiculously successful, ridiculously easy. Turn up, play a few piano chords, and then... Um, sit back and watch the show really and i never wanted to do it live it was it was it was just a fleeting moment it was uh again for all the reasons i give before you know it's like it's uh, it's it was never about that and I, I never wanted to go and um i always wanted to explore this bizarre journey that i find myself on so it was yeah that fleeting. is incredible because so you've officially stopped doing that side of your work mm. you it's more almost like a favor for a friend and yeah i'm guessing you had very low expectations as well, and then. Well, yeah, everyone sort of says to me, "Oh, you know, you must have known when you walked in the room that she was a megastar." Well, no, not really. I mean, you, you know, you, you do. She, you encounter a lot of good singers, a lot of great singers, and she is a great singer and a great everything else. Uh, but I didn't imagine for a second it would be this. I think the only inkling I had was that um, I knew when, when I heard that she was going to sing the Brit Awards live, which was that sort of that kind of. Um, that, sh- that shock moment wasn't it when she sort of seemed to capture mm. everyone's imagination mm. um i knew she'd deliver because i've seen her deliver first takes every time she's she's you know she's good from the off there's no there's no uh, there's no trickery it's all there um so that didn't surprise me at all but of course i mean it just it was ridiculous it's been ridiculous ever since <laughs> yeah <laughs> record breaking but just through playing on Rolling in the Deep and Hometown Glory, doesn't that surely make you one of the most listened to piano players in the world at this point? It, it does by default. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, again, it's it's sort of they're just words, and um, they it's uh, it's a kind of a tongue in cheek um, phrase, really, isn't it? To, to say you know most listened to pianist, um, but uh, yeah, it is um, by yeah by by no feet of my own, or rather no you know no. Um, uh, no, no fault of my own. It's uh, that is true. That is true. Yeah. By accident. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> um, and then, are there any other uh, gaps that need plugging in terms of your story getting from there to here? Obviously, you did your jazz trio for a long time as well. Yes, I, 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 the Neil Cowley trio was a was a thing that um, um, that was conceived of in about two thousand and five, two thousand and six, um, and I. Uh, decided to uh, I I'd, I'd been in a band called Fragile State and it was a sort of a downtempo mm. electronica thing and uh, right at the point when we were going to perhaps make a little bit of money out of our success the record company went bust and I thought well this is a great time to start a jazz trio because my dad had had one and I and I thought but I'll do it with a difference um and I wanted to encapsulate some of that sort of energy and that that aggression perhaps that was in me um and uh, so that came about and 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 again, that was a sort of bizarre um, success that was born out of nowhere. I'd, I had no preconceived idea of how that would go. And in fact, we we won a we won like one of these BBC Jazz Award things. And when we were introduced on the mm. stage, the, the guy who introduced us said, "Well, I've never heard of these people, but um, they've just won the best album." <laughs> so um, they didn't know who we were. We didn't know who they were, and we didn't know who we were either. Um, yeah, but then we did later with Jules and. Yeah, it was great. I did about ten years with with that outfit. Loved every second of it with Evan mm-hmm. and Rex. Toured the world and 
and did it on my terms, which is what I was always after anyway. Um, but I think in come in about 2016, we released an album called Space Bound Apes, and it was a, th- a thoroughly conceptual piece with multimedia and a book and videos and a storyline. And, um, and at the end of that, I thought, actually, I'm I'm a bit exhausted from running a, a three-piece band and trying to keep it sort of almost single-handedly on the uh, on the go. I mean, obviously, I did have huge help from lots of wonderful people, but it, it always felt it came down to me, and I wanted to just relax that little part of myself and uh, and um, do something simpler, uh, logistically simpler, and explore something that what, that didn't have any previous baggage, which is how the the latest project has came about. Really, it was a, a freeing of myself. Yeah, so the most recent Act of Rebellion was 2018, was it? Were you like, I'm in this uh, very successful jazz chair and I'm going to do something else now? Yeah, I, I, never never an easy thing. You know, when, you, when you've got something that's got a reputation and it's, and it's got a lot of love around it, you, it's, it's never easy to go, right, I'm going to put an end to it. Um, mm. But I did. Um, and, of course, you know, you do it and then you go, oh, what have I done the right thing? And, and that, that feeling can last sort of – well, it can last – years sometimes um a lot of confusion a lot of uh self-doubt um and then thankfully ultimately it landed uh, i landed on my feet with it um having thought that i would land catastrophically on my back with it <laughs> um uh, so it did pay off it, it seems to be the message i seem to be telling myself subconsciously is is always take a risk always um always take yourself out of your comfort zone and um really put yourself in the mire for want of a better word i can think of a better word but yeah really put yourself in the mire and uh and dig your way out of it always a good thing absolutely Mm -hmm. so based on all that it sounds like the piano is this instrument you keep coming back to but it sounds like you you and your instrument have had a very rocky relationship yes we have we have had a rocky relationship um right from the from the off you know as we just previously spoke about that as a as a kid it was a it was something that was I was told was good for me or or rather I was told I was I was good at it but had no inclination to do anything with it I had no inclination to do it for a living uh, and I was made to practice a lot uh, I did practice hell of a lot I did all of my hard work really in my childhood um and it was a daily argument an argument between me and my mum and um, like are you going to practice how long are you going to practice don't stop practicing and all the time, I just wanted to go and play cricket or play out in the street with my mates. And uh, so there's a lot of sacrifices, which is so it's no wonder by the time I got to my teenage years, I'd had enough and I was I was up for a bit of rebellion. And it was only when um, a, a friend of my my mum's actually a, a guy called Martin who was, who was running a soul band said, We need a keyboard player. And my mum said, Oh, well, you know, I've got my boy plays. Uh, and he introduced me to soul music and funk music and jazz music and blues music. And then the lid came off. And, I, and then I was in pubs, uh, you know, till two o'clock in the morning, uh, age 13 and 14. And suddenly it was deeply, deeply attractive. And then the passion started and then a, then a desire to discover it and a desire to understand it and desire to teach myself all the music that had been I'd been deprived of. Uh, there was a lot of history I had to catch up on, mostly recent history. I had my Bach down and my Mozart down and everything else down, but I had no, I had no inclination who Ray Charles was or anything, just none. So um, that was fantastic. That that created a real appetite. And then I ended up traveling everywhere with it. So it, it, it was obviously an amazing thing. So my relationship with my piano then was, it was everything and it became everything. And, and it was the, it was the cornerstone from which I experienced everything. 
but there's like any you know like any love affair you have if you have a love affair with a person or an instrument there are good times and bad times and there are times when you wonder what on earth you'd be without it and sometimes that curiosity gets the better of you and i think that in 2018 2019 i decided that i wanted to know what i was like without the piano so i'd recently signed to a new management company and they were very electronic music based and i used that as a sort of springboard i, I they introduced me to a lot of repertoire a lot of stuff that was going on and i bought myself an unbelievable amount of uh, electronic equipment trying to find way new ways to compose true new ways to express myself and um it uh it was so all the time the piano sat in the corner saying, well, you know, don't forget me, but I completely forgot it really. I, I, the lid was shut and I was always trying to find this humanity that I knew I was capable of expressing, but it, it, looking for it in all the wrong places. And it was only when I went to Berlin, uh, I think for the first time to visit my mate Greg and we went to uh, the Funkhouse Studios and I sat down one day and played the piano because it was sitting there, this beautiful grand piano. I suddenly, I, I, Someone pressed record and, and about two hours worth of music came out and I realised, oh my God, I've ignored this all this time. This is, it always has to come from the piano. All right, okay, I, I've been on a journey to discover who I am without it, but ultimately I have to come back to it and I ultimately have to find new love for it. Um, and I did. Uh, and then the love affair began again. Hmm. So it seems to me the piano is, it, it is a love-hate relationship. It, it's... Um, I've, I've dreaded and loathed it at times. I've been completely indifferent to it other times. There are times when I am indifferent to it. And so, so much, you know, I spent so much time away from the piano in this recent episode that I, my hands were starting to hurt when I played them. You know, my technical ability was starting to wane. Mm. Um, but I went back to it in time and the result is this album, Hall of Mirrors, which is, you know, uh, I suppose a, a reunification, a reuniting, uh, friends reunited for me and the piano. <laughs> yeah, oh, it's fitting the re reunification happened in Berlin. Well, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was because I'd I'd um, I'd I'd visited that part of the world uh, around the time the the wall came down, early nineties. I, I visited uh, the old Ch Ch Czechoslovakia, as it was, and yeah. went to Prague just after the wall came down and saw the um, the virtual anarchy that was that was around, you know, the removal of one regime and it trying to find where it sat with another. And there were all sorts of um, expat Americans suddenly on the street over there and there were strange laws and all sorts of shenanigans going on. Um, mm. But it was a beautiful, beautiful thing, the starkness of, of, of the... Um, of the Soviet legacy and the, what they left behind and, and this new reunification of Europe. So Berlin was an apt place to, to find reunification because it was, a, you know, I experienced it first and so many people did watched it on TV and felt that unbelievable surge of um, spirit and humanity. So it was very fitting. It's a great place to be anyway, yeah. full stop. Cause I'm not sure if you said, did you, did you choose the piano as a child or was it a parent or a teacher saying, Oh, you should do this. And then was there maybe that small bit of resentment that you didn't, actively choose it yourself or well yeah i um it, i i did sort of i mean it was it was uh my dad was a piano player but he wasn't around but he did he did buy a piano for the house because they used to have parties at my house so my dad left the piano and i used to play the piano um a lot especially when it was dark I used to t like to turn all the lights off and play the play the piano lots and sort of make lovely noises and spacious sounds 
Uh, and so my, my mother said, right, okay, well, I think you need to go for piano lessons. So I clearly, you know, I was drawn to it. There was something natural in me that wanted to go to it. Um, but I, I think like anyone, you know, you do it, you do it for a few years, it's a novelty. And then there comes a period when you think, well, I'd like to do other things. And that's when the resentment perhaps started or the, 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 the strange animosity with it started. It's, it's really hard when you've done something for so long and you, and, and most of your life, like, you know, 90% of your life probably more um it really is hard to know what you are without it i suppose it's like anything it's like tea or cigarettes it's like what what am i without those things Uh, what am i without that that one item um because it's so inextricably linked with everything that you do every step that you take yeah um so it's it's um it's scary how much of a hold it has on you but it's probably even scarier to remove it um and then you realize that you have this addiction to it and uh yeah you know you have an umbilical cord to it yeah without tea i'm a gibbering wreck so that's a very good well point. yeah yeah me too <laughs> <laughs> me too we are from these aisles after all yeah of course <laughs> um i was that's amazing that the coming back together happened at funk house because um i recently got to do this podcast with liam moore i don't know if you guys got to meet liam he's moore. a resident there Oh really? Uh, no, I didn't. I, I I went in that big old room over there. You know, obviously it's like Neil's Farms room, isn't it? And um, I uh, yeah. it had every conceivable bit of German tech um, administered. It was like the, the beautiful old this beautiful old vintage stuff, and there's a huge unicorda that you know an old which is one of those pianos with this where the strings aren't um they're not abridged are they they're, they're the length that they're supposed to be so the the actual keyboard is up on the ceiling and you have to climb a ladder to get to the top of it um and they had all sorts of amazing vintage gear the, the only disadvantage was that um you felt the whole time like you were tiptoeing around this stuff and me as being the clumsy person i am i was dead scared i was going to break it at any given point mm-hmm. um um and it was only when on the second day of being there that the engineer announced that he was actually going to get married that day he hadn't even told us and he he buggered off and then and then uh greg and i were left like two british punks in this uh, amazingly superbly engineered german toy shop and we jumped around like idiots like playing everything and and using everything and plugging everything in and that's when the magic happened really it was it was was quite a stifling atmosphere at first because there is all this incredibly well um uh, what's the word? You know, well protected and well teched uh, musical equipment. It's quite intimidating. Don't want to touch it. It's like a museum. Yeah. Mm. No. Well, yeah. Liam was telling me about it. Obviously, the Bauhaus architecture sounds incredible. I've been to Berlin three times and I haven't been to Funkhaus. So I'm kicking myself. It's out point. in the. It's out in the middle of nowhere, somewhat, because yeah. it's the old East German radio station, I yeah. think. Um, so yeah, you, and when, yeah, yeah. So when you get on the tram. It's the it's kind of the end of the line, or it feels like it is anyway. A lot of people have got off by the time you get to the funk house. Um, mm. um, and there's a there's also as a uh, sort of a I think there's a music academy there now. So there's lots of young people around with drinking coffee, um, looking trendy. Um, but it is it's an yes, it's an incredible building. I mean, it's, it seems to be sort of endless, and the rooms are just stunning. Um, uh it's yes yeah, well worth a visit I, I would recommend it yeah well liam is also saying just the community obviously the Bauhaus architecture everything's incredible in the gear but mm-hmm. also in between sessions you'll go and get a coffee and then so that's how liam became friends with Niels from and then eventually Niels said hey do you want to come to america on tour and do merch and stuff and he ended up meeting 
Brad Pitt to Nils from LA show. So shows <laughs> shows how that kind of amazing artist community. Well, this I don't is there's a London equivalent, really. To something well, like funny that. you say that. I was about to say because where I am, um, it may not, it may not. Ha- well, actually, I mean, it's a beautiful architecture. I'm at Metropolis, which is in Chiswick, oh. which is which is um, the old uh, powerhouse that powered the trams on this side of London back in the day. Um, and there is a community of sorts here. Um, there's a lot of musicians in the building. There's a lot of studios and people sort of crawl out of dark nooks and crannies all day long. And you do bump, you bump into all sorts um, mm. of, you know, like from right from, you know, uh, Jay-Z right down to, I don't know, a, a fantastic engineer, um, producer, writer, um, I mean, you have all sorts going on. Just, I mean, but you know, one one bizarre uh, collaboration. I I ended up doing a little collaboration with a singer called um, Chloe Black, who popped in my room, and she she popped in my room to apologise because the guy she'd been working with the the week before had had got sick, and <laughs> on the session he was in with her, and he started throwing up outside my room. So I walked out of my room. And there was this, there was this sort of trail of, oh, no. of, <laughs> of sick, and uh, she was mortified. And about two days later, she popped in. She said, "I'm so so sorry. I don't know who that was. He was a guest of mine. I'm not really sure who he was." Um, and uh, and we got chatting, and we sort of shared the taste of in French cinema, and and uh, and then we did a little collaboration together. And best of all, we had some just great chats, and uh, it was inspiring in itself. So it is lovely when. You're in a building. Uh, it's worth, you know, worth its weight in gold to have a building where you might bump into people because you might be flat. You might be wondering where your next bit of creativity comes from. And having had a studio at the end of my garden and known how dark and bleak that can be when you when you're on a dead patch and there's just nothing but your neighbours putting their washing out. That's it can be pretty uninspiring. It's good to have that resource. And good to have backup, and there's a tech department here, and they're amazing at um, encouraging me with any sort of mad tech ideas that I've got. You know, that one of the guys in there has even invented this. Um, I asked him one day, I said, do you think pianos can could ever play televisions? And he went, well, not really, but let me have a think about it. He went away, and he came back with this. I'd, I'd bought all these old televisions off ebay 70s tvs black and white mainly with rf aerials in the back and it it created this lead that i've got i've got a sort of a pickup on my piano so you can take a jack out of my piano and then he created a lead that went jack to rf at the other end and we plugged them all in this bunch of tvs and i played a note and it was the tvs had static on them and that static just formed into little waveforms and when it was a low note they were big forms and when there was it was a high note they were really high forms and we sort of mm. jumped around giving each other high fives saying, Eureka, Eureka. And that's become my live show for this Hall of Mirrors album and this Hall of Mirrors, what will be an eventual tour, uh, are these TVs that I can play. And that was inspiring and wholly made possible by the fact that I was in here in this in this communal building. Communities, communities are good. <laughs> we seem to have forgotten, yeah. but they're really good. No, you're right about Metropolis. I did an interview there and then the guy's interviewing just casually dropped in that he's going to be hanging out with Stormzy at the... Metropolis later. Yeah, he's that always day. here, Stormzy. Yeah, he's always here. He's always sort of having trouble parking his huge car in the car park here because the car park's oh, yeah. a nightmare. There's, there's pillars everywhere. <laughs> but yeah, he's yeah. always about. <laughs> um, just going back to Berlin, so was there any intent in that trip to Berlin from a sort of creative standpoint or were you just visiting your friend Greg, did you say? 
I went with a creative intent. I was visiting Greg because um, I was, I'd already decided I was going to work on this album with Greg Freeman and um, we'd had a little bit of previous and he's fantastic. He's from the real world stable, you know, over Peter Gabriel's place over in Wiltshire. There's a lot of amazing engineers and producers that come out of there. They do, mm. they, they, they have their apprenticeship there. So I was already intent. I was going to work with Greg. Um, and there's nothing better than getting away from home or something familiar, getting away from yourself, getting away from your physical familiarity, all those familiar places. So I was going there to make music, but I sort of took a bunch of ideas I wasn't quite happy with. And all the best stuff happened while I was there. Um, you know, I sort of scrapped all that after the first day, the, all the stuff I'd brought and just the, the, the few days recording uh, recordings I did at the Funk House became the, sort of the embryonic part of the, the album. And then I... I went home and wrote more with that in mind and then went back several times with the intent of going in there and trying. I went to Jazzanova's studio as well, which is a brilliant, brilliant place with lots of fantastic instruments um, and another great grand piano. Um, and I'd, I'd built this pedal board of lovely effects that I was using to put my piano through. So it, um, it just became the, it became the point where it was, it was a place where I went to, where I went to finish my ideas or or went to inspire myself. It just became the place. being in Berlin that helped you unlock that because listen I romanticise that city so much I'm a bit obsessed with it and I know we touched on the kind of east and west mm. very cool vibes yeah but yeah was there something about just the place and the time yeah I, there is I mean it, it's just I love Europe anyway you know I, I love I love mm. wandering around parts of Europe and there is um, there is something very fascinating about you know that 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 culture itself um the way any city works is a, is a is a fascinating thing i mean you can probably you can hear on the album we recorded greg and i went for a walk one night with our mm. dictaphones and, and just recorded walking around the streets it's our footsteps you can hear us walking around and you, you can walk past various languages you hear and shouting and the sound of you said the sound of tire car tires on cobbles in itself <laughs> is a lovely sound. It's that high pitch sort of da 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 sound you get, and sounds of a place are oh, tell you a lot. You know, you can you can hear a lot about the character of a place. I've also had um, I'd, I'd also had a long term love of uh, Vin Vendors' film, The Wings of Desire, mm. which is, in case you haven't seen it, is a film about angels in Berlin who can hear the thoughts of people and, and as they walk past it, people, they can hear their narrative. Uh, 
And um, at one point, Peter Falk plays himself, you know, Columbo, he plays himself visiting the city and you hear inside his head. Um, and it's, it's made in black and white. And I, I find it strangely romantic. Um, it's, it's funny, actually, because I, I, I heard someone talking about uh, the German people um, a few days ago saying, that, of course, we have this 20th century idea of what it is to be German, um, which we're taught in our history classes. But actually, the, the perception of Germany on the Germans previous to that in, say, the 19th century was a, 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 a group of people who were largely romantic quite listless as well which makes me laugh mm. listless romantic and it was a center of of culture and of course you go further back from that and you, musically i mean goodness you have such a hub of classical music culture and romanticism coming from germany yeah. not, that can't be any coincidence so there is this, this sort of nascent or this this um you know sleeping romanticism which perhaps it's it's beginning to rediscover about itself, you know, tarnished by its rocky 20th century history. Maybe it's in there in the, in the arteries and in the veins and, and we, and one can sense it. I, I do. I think, I think there's lovely something about the air, the way the, the sky opens up, the way it's what it feels like to have a coffee in Berlin of a morning mm-hmm. and what it feels like to walk about. I, I there is something you, I think, you know, like I say in hushed tones, you say this place is quite romantic. People say, what, really? Yeah, <laughs> it is. It really is. <laughs> no, absolutely. Did this sort of time coincide with you working with Ben Lucas Boyson? Yes, I, I, that was just before, actually. Uh, the first, maybe that's what gave me the first notion that I like. I wanted to locate myself there for a good part of my project because a collaboration was arranged between myself and Ben, who's one of the loveliest fellas on earth. He was a beautiful host. And he has this uh, this apartment high up. Uh, I think you visited there, haven't you? Yeah, you, yeah, no, I can. Yeah, you've been to Ben's place, and it's it's on the sort of it seems it feels like it's on the fifteenth floor. It isn't, but there's something about the stairs in that place which just knacker you out by the time you get to the top. Mm-hmm. So he's there welcoming you with a coffee, and um, we spent the first two or three hours of our uh, meeting of our introduction, drinking coffee and talking about our lives. He's he's got an incredible mastery of the english language better than mine i should think um <laughs> he's uh hugely intelligent um tattoo fest- festooned philosophy philosopher i'd say and musician and what's fascinating about ben is he's is he composes but but doesn't refer to himself as a piano player he makes piano music largely but doesn't refer to himself as a piano player. He, he would he would hate that and 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 wouldn't want to be uh, asked to play piano. So he he composes a lot of his piano music on the on the grid on on say Logic, you know, on music software. He he pulls notes about. So that was our largely our collaboration. I, I played piano. I played notes for him. I played a, a series of things, and he pulled a few notes about here and there, and um, that he whenever he wanted to sort of create some new harmonic dissonance or something. And he's a brilliant producer. Um, and um, so once I'd done my bit of playing piano, I would largely sort of lay on the on the couch behind him while he worked away with his 15 coffees and he's vaping. <laughs> and uh, uh, he, um, he would uh, finish the job. And I, I slept blissfully for, for, I remember, little sort of 10-minute naps. I'm a great, 
lover of a nap. And I would, I would nap away behind him as he finished the job and meticulously, you know, we sorted out the detail. Uh, but we remar- we worked remarkably quickly. I think we did sort of four tunes in about a day and a half, and they became an EP that we put out. Um, but he's lovely, Ben. He's a lovely guy, and um, it felt like um, it felt like I was re- revisiting that 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 classical hub of of music. You know that that history had taught me about regard. You know, r- with um, various composers from the centuries before. It felt like I was I was connecting compositionally with something deep deeply rooted with ben it felt like we were sort of two i suppose neoclassical ish composers beavering away um it was nice i felt cultured is what i felt <laughs> thanks to him yeah and i guess you're a very good match because he I, I remember now he has a very interesting relationship to the piano mm. as well doesn't he did he play it quite a bit when he was younger and now as you mentioned he more sort of programs piano parts rather than actually plays them. Yeah, he plays down his piano playing. Um, I I don't think he's really played piano in front of me, other than I've seen him at a gig. But I don't think he's... Maybe he's just, you know, he's such a humble, lovely geezer. He probably just Mm. thought, oh, no, I'll keep that to myself. But So he he played it down. I know he had... Yes, you're right. He had lessons early on. his parents were actors, if I remember rightly. Certainly his father was, anyway. So there's art in the family. Um, it certainly is a massive brain, just non-stop, fueled with coffee. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, he has, he does, as you say, he does have an interesting relationship with it, with the piano because um, he doesn't seem to play it much. But yeah. he makes wonderful, thoughtful piano music. He's great. Yeah, of course. So yeah, that leads leads us really nicely to Hall of Mirrors. And at the time of speaking, you've just put out a music video for "I Choose the Mountain." Was that last night? Yeah, that came out last night. That's right. Yeah, my um, Paris te- Vin Vendors. You see, because I, I mentioned Vin Vendors earlier with um, "The Wings of Desire," but Will Clark, the amazing yeah. director of this video that we've just put together, um, decided that, that we should replicate the opening scene for Paris, Texas with uh, Harry Dean Stanton, who's wandering around in a sort of a dreadful 80s suit and sandals and a red cap. Um, he's wandering around, the, I think it's in the Nevada desert or something like that. Um, and, he's, and he drinks from a, a, a plastic bottle and he just wanders off over the horizon. 
and Will got me to replicate every movement that Harry Dean Stanton did, and and it it, it overtook me because I also. I decided that he was thinner than me, probably because it looks as if he smoked about 30 a day. And um, I've long since given up. So I thought, well, I, I, so I, I did a bit of method acting and I lost a lot of weight for it. Grew the, got, got the beard just right and mm. really went to town on looking like him. So I tried to embody Harry Dean Stanton. And we went down to uh, Beachy Head and, uh, and, filmed, we, and we had a, a stunt owl <laughs> in the in the film, it's, it's an yeah. eagle that lands on a rock. So we thought we'd have sort of the, the British version of that. So we had a, a, a Scops owl uh, landing on a rock, um, and uh, and then it sort of became its own thing, and then it sort of morphed into its own story. And at the end of it, we realised actually what we'd made is a sort of suicide video because you see my cap just sort of swashling about in the um, in the surf at the end and it very and I've walked into the water it very much looks as if I've committed suicide and, I, and I, actually I, I I can say without shame because I do credit Will with so much of the skill uh, and there was such a wonderful team you know that, that, that put it together but I can say that I, I, I genuinely shed a tear when I see that video it's something very very poignant about it uh, and I can remove myself from it enough to go yeah that's that's pretty beautiful and it goes with the music so so wonderfully um so yeah, that came out last night, and I think it's. Um, I think people are going to love that. I think they just will because I think I can objectively say it's quite lovable. <laughs> no, it's absolutely brilliant. I definitely urge everyone to give it um, a watch. Do you say you filmed that in? Where was that? Sorry, Beachy Head. There's, yeah, a, there's a beautiful scenery in the video as well. Yeah, it, it's it's sort of the South Downs National Park, uh, and it's about a sort of twenty five minute walk to get to that location, and you've got to get you've got to be clever with the tide. Um, and you've also got to look over your shoulder because the cliffs down there, which are, they are, they're, they're, they essentially look like the white cliffs of Dover. I think it's the same, you know, they're called the seven sisters, aren't they? Those things, these great big white cliffs behind us. And they ha- do have a habit of creating little avalanches from time to time. I mean, we went there for a recce at one point and sort of photographed it all out and pasted it all out. And then we went back two weeks later and it was completely different because half the cliff had fallen down. So you have to watch, watch it back. And the, and the guy, the guy who helped us uh, from the national park who saw us in said, look, if you hear a rumble, just start running for the sea. Cause it's the only safe place. <laughs> so well, that, that was always in the back of my mind that we were going to end up running into the sea just to save our lives. <laughs> um, yeah. So hall of mirrors. So it's a solo piano album and you've touched on the sound design with, sort of trams in Berlin and um guessing some of your synths as well but um yep. yeah I don't know how you feel about pe- people are inevitably going to call this sort of neoclassical and compare it to yep. Niels Fram and Max Richter probably me included when I type this up but um, <laughs> yeah how yep. do you feel about or how do you think it fits into that whole thing I can yes I can see why yeah I, I, um I mean also working with Ben because Ben's uh having worked with Ben before he's on erased tapes yeah. um which is a label that renowned for this, just such stuff. Um, I guess, you know, uh, when you're a piano player, you can come to, um, you can come, you can come to, con- you can come to shared conclusions. Um, it wasn't conscious, but that, you know, you can end up, you can end up in a, in a sort of a similar vein. Um, I've, I, I, th- you know, there are obviously going to be obvious differences and, I try and draw out those differences, um, but of course, once you put a piano on something in the modern age, you know, then uh, you are going to invite those comparisons. Um, neoclassical, yes. I mean, I've laughed about the whole neoclassical thing because uh, as soon as we brought the record out, we got put on 
you know, endless number of neoclassical playlists and, you know, and, and, and you know, mixes and things. And, um, we were joking in our team that, oh, right, I'm a classical artist now. I had no idea. I mean, I, you know, you don't, I don't think it, it's very few people, I imagine, that think, well, I'm going to, I'm going to aim for this genre or I am this genre. I think genres are, Obviously, it's a convenient label, and we could you could debate that till the cows come home as to whether it's appropriate or not, or whether it's a necessary evil. But it it, it has its place, and um, yeah, I guess I'm a I'm to some to a lot of people I'm a neoclassical artist now. And up to two weeks ago, I had no idea. I'm just doing what I do. <laughs> but you know, if you look at my heritage, as it were, or my 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 history of being taught classically and having a classical technique. And still maintaining somewhere deep in there, even though I blanked it out for about 20 years, there's still a love in there for Bach and Shostakovich, certainly, and little bits of Debussy. And it's going to come out. And when there's an avenue for it to come out, it's going to re- reveal itself and, and show its uh, show its hand. Um, I've always been marginally classical. It's just in me. I've also been deeply influenced um, by... R&B and soul but I wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily hear that on this record mm. maybe unless you listen to sort of very delicate nuances of it um but if you hear me play the Fender Rhodes I always inevitably ended up end up sounding like someone from Philadelphia because it's just I I I do that quite well really if I'm honest <laughs> I play, I play Philly soul and sort of American R&B really really well um but I keep it to myself because I think it's important to maintain my overall identity and to have a voice that's fitting of me being who I am where I live where I'm from I think it's important to embody that um and so I do try and avoid replication even though you've just as you said to me you know I, I am going to get categorized in the Max Richter etc stable yeah mm. It's That's interesting. Right. I mean, they're great. Yeah, no. <laughs> I mean, it's so interesting. If you look at, say, Oliver Arnold's, he's by no means a virtuoso and it's sort of deceptively simple music. But because um, mm. I remember being at Sheffield Uni, I remember composition, it was almost like, oh, just write the weirdest, most complicated, unlistenable music <laughs> you can to get a high. A high yeah. grade. And it's almost like this genre, if you want to call it a genre, mm. it's almost like this reaction against all that contemporary stuff that's almost like only for the sort of high class almost music snobbery i guess you could call it yeah it's a it's a hard one to decipher because uh, you know there's all i guess um people would accuse it of being more commercial uh and it has a broader appeal so therefore by default it is but i also think there are you know there's a lot of impressionism within this stuff i think um there's a lot of mood music about it um it's hard to know. I, I can't quite put my finger on where I sit in that. Um, I think my, my internal dialogue, certainly when I was running my trio, my internal dialogue went all the way to, hey, let's make this as complicated as possible. Not because I wanted it to be complicated and I wanted to uh, alienate anyone. I, my my quest with my trio was always to make it complicated enough so that me and my bandmates were musically challenged and we got we sort of enjoy, we got that thrill from it that a musician gets from mastering some weird stuff but also i wanted to make sure that the the listener rarely heard that that was always my challenge to to make something that sounded very melodically driven and quite simplistic and and very 
empathetic. So you could empathize with its feeling or its emotion or its melody. But underneath it all, and I always used to use a sort of swan analogy, you know, that, that or a duck analogy where there's there's a sw- there's a swan on top of the water that's sort of gracefully moving along, but underneath it all, we're f- we're paddling our feet like bilio to try and keep up with the sort of complexity of what we've created. And I think there's tracks like Sparkling that we did, which is absolutely all over the shop in terms of. I mean, God no. I mean, th- this whole thing about academic music as well is is I, I've always been intimidated by, by it myself because I've always felt that everyone knows better than I do what's going on theoretically. I haven't got. I was terrible at theory. So when I wrote a thing like Sparkling, which is, I mean, I don't think any bar is the same, you know, you know, in other words, there's different beats in each bar. It's, mm. it's all over the shop and it's not with intent. I, I literally, I think it's one take of piano recording. I just went, Oh, I'm going to feel something and play it. And then at the end of it realized I'd written some academic mess. Um, mm. And then it was the, the poor, it was the duty of the poor band, like especially Rex on bass to go, Oh, what have you done here? You know, like, and try and work it out so that he could play it. Um, but it wasn't, I didn't, it was all done by ear, so so there was there was no there was no sort of uh, um, conceit within or, or any or any sort of a pretension really. It was it really was it's it's a real just happens to be difficult, but I think it sounds beautiful, and I think therefore that sort of that glosses over this. There's nothing. There is nothing worse, I think, than something that's trying to sound highbrow or trying to please the academics mm. um it's not, it's not worse i mean there's a place for it but it's it's a limited place and and i i really think it's important to within music you've got to remember that it's for feeling something and it's for as many people as possible to feel it um uh, in my mind anyway I, I without selling yourself short or selling your soul all those pitfalls of being music driven or music musical uh you've got to avoid those pitfalls but i do try and navigate it the best i can <laughs> yeah no amazing um i'd love to ask about the sort of studio side of your work if that's interesting yeah if you um yeah so i guess starting with simps because I, I get the impression you really love your simps side and i guess you do you kind of identify as an analog guy or yeah, where do you oh. fit in, fit in the raging debate about analog versus digital? Well, yeah, I don't get involved in the debate as such because I think everything has its place, and I and I I'm always fascinated by the way people use stuff. And um, as someone was alluding to the other day, a conversation I heard, someone quite well known, I think, saying that it's always the worst. It's always the worst accidents about a a, mm. a period of technology that become the thing that people that people try and replicate later. You know, now now we're, tr- we're trying to mini- um, trying to replicate tape wobble and and hiss yeah. and all the <laughs> things that you try to get try to eradicate when the when the technology first came about. Yeah. And and no doubt with digital technology, we'll all be trying to replicate god awful sounding MP3 stuff and grunge and noise and mm. and you know and then low low res stuff and that's the stuff that becomes cool that everyone wants to own or own a replication of um so i have i think everything has its place and its time um i am largely speaking looking around me now in this room an analog person um that's because i just like having i i feel that when i when i operate a button on a piece of equipment i play i i operate it musically or i'm more inclined to operate it musically than i am if you give me a mouse and i'm trying to sort of 
wrestle with something on the screen. I don't feel it. Something something gets in the way of the feeling. So I try and I do use analog stuff because it gives me that opportunity and it feels like a natural extension from my pianistic roots. I I can, like I say, I can make it live musically. So, you know, I use for effects on my piano, I use guitar pedals and, uh, I've got a bit of modular stuff here. I've got a lot of old synths. I've got, you know, like a, a 1973 Moog I'm looking at here. And a, I've got some old tape machines and um, I've got old Korgs, old Rolands and nice old compressors. And I've got, of course, everyone has to have a Fender Rhodes. And a, I've got a Vintage Vibe, which is a sort of modern Fender Rhodes equivalent. I've got a Wurlitz. I've got a Philly Corder organ. And I, I have got a bit of a collection and it's, I never yeah. seem to sell it or give it away. So my room is, I just have to keep getting bigger and bigger rooms. Um, <laughs> so I, I love, I just love, I love what they inspire in me, but I'm certainly not um, dictatorial about it. I, uh, In fact, Greg, who I, you know, work with on this and who produced it with me said, uh, it was, he's a plug-in fanatic, loves a plug-in. Mm. Um, and he uses them fantastically well. And I defy anyone to go, oh, that's a plug-in or that's real. It's it's just how you use it. It's not really – yes, they have they do have a sound, and sometimes you can get a bit used to certain sounds and go, oh, I can detect, detect what that is now. But that's a very, yeah. very small number of people. If It's how you use it. That really is the, the bottom line. Yeah. So guess on that, which plugins are you a fan of yourself? <laughs> well, okay, well, I love um, – the ones I go to, I think what most people go to. I love the sound toys stuff. I yeah. love Eventide stuff. Um, in fact, you got me thinking now. I'm I'm I'm, I'm now looking at uh, I'm looking at my uh, my door, which is Logic. It happens to be Logic. Um, mm. You know, I, I use the UAD stuff just because it's that's that's the system I use. I use the Altiverb reverbs, Fab Filter EQs. Uh, Clev Grand cassette effects. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a, there's a little the Valhalla stuff's great. Everyone uses that. Mm. There's lots of little bits and pieces that quite a lot of people use that I I enjoy very much. Um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big one for a good old Eventide Shimmer Black mm-hmm. Hole Reverb. I love all that. Um, yeah, yeah, amazing. And then finally, just yeah, I'd love to hear about your sort of mics, uh, the speakers you're on, and do you have a sound card there as well that you're a fan of? Well, I use I just use the universal universal audio Apollo thing. You know, that's yeah, that's, yeah. that's my uh, fairly standard. Really, uh, I use that, um, and I've got um, my latest pair of speakers is a pair of Genelex. The, uh, the they're called the Ones, aren't they? The um, yeah, can't remember what their serial number is, but <laughs> I'm use the, I use those in this place um, because here at Metropolis, I think Genelec have got quite a big presence here. So it's, they, I uh, yeah, I fell into much, those. Yeah. Almost take up yeah. the entire wall. Some of them is almost yeah, boring. exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, I don't, you know, using mics. I, I again, I, 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 what I do when I do use a mic in this room, other than just some fairly standard little uh, condenser mics I use on my piano. When I do want to use a special mic, of course, the other thing about being in this lovely building is I can ask the guys in the tech department, "Hey, can I borrow your Neumann? Or can I borrow whatever? You know, I can, I can mm. borrow some amazing vintage stuff, and they're kind enough to lend it to me for a few hours. So I have that facility. Another. As I say, another profit of being in a a, a building full of other creators. Yeah. Mm. Um, oh, just on Genlec, have you worked with worked with those for a while, and you big fan of the results you you get out of those? Yeah, I I, I do like them. I mean, I mean, you know, I think everyone's always sort of 
you know, going through a process of buying speakers, loving the new speakers, and then wondering if they they could they want to freshen up their ears. So you, it's a permanent process. But I do, yeah, I do like them. They're 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 really reliable, and they come with that tool, you know, where you where you, it it, um, it sounds sends, sends out some horrific tone that goes all the way through the octaves. Uh, it sounds like a boom this this tone, and then it works out from there what uh, the settings on the speakers should be, and it does it all in house, you know, in, within its technology. So it, uh, anything that takes out of the um, engineering know how or mouse for me is a bonus because I feel I, I, I'm such an autodidact. I don't really feel that I know anything properly. I sort of know bits and pieces when it comes to uh, technology. I'm uh, sort of hanging together by a thread and a selection of safety pins, really. Amazing. Well, cheers, Neil. So finally, yeah, what, what's the rest of the year looking like? Are you sort of tentatively looking at performing this live? I know you mentioned you're, you want to take these TVs and your synths, um, which sounds like yeah, a well, part I, of the music, right? It is, yeah, it is. Um, I think, you know, the, the result of this whole uh, situation for the past year is uh, that the, uh, the byproduct of that is that there are, there's almost, there's a backlog, like there's a backlog on so many other things. There's a backlog in artists and bands and musicians getting into venues and being able to play. So everything's going to happen later than one would want. So I think really in truth, I'll be touring proper, properly going into the late part of this year, into the early part of next year that for this record. I mean, I've got, a, I've got a gig in Islington in June um, at the Academy. Um, uh, Academy? What am I talking about? Is it the Academy? Now, now I've got, what am I talking about? It's not there at all, is it? Hang on. I've got to check. I'm, check on my own. Sorry, the Assembly Hall. What am I talking about? I'm at the Assembly Hall in Islington <laughs> in June. Uh, but other than that, I think everything, all the tour will be happening next year. And then for the rest of the year, I'll be making i want to make a follow-up album to this quite soon so i'll be spending a lot of time as of now i'm even doing that here today i'm working on the new album um for release later on next year uh and then i'll be hopefully touring that again so it's all going to be quick fire i think um and um yeah so that will be uh that that will be my year more more studio stuff (laughs) yeah amazing yeah I thought maybe you meant the Royal Academy of Music, but all oh, fancy that'd be nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, no, I didn't mean the Academy at all. Of course, like right. I say, I meant the Assembly Hall. They'll kill me for saying that. Yeah. There isn't an Academy in Islington. I don't even know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so that show is that going to have all the the uh, televisions you mentioned and that whole thing going on? It will. It'll have all the TVs and uh, the yeah the connection and the, and the visuals and the it's a it's a it's an immersive show and it's a, it's a show that. Um, I've set up in, in not only to hopefully inspire the audience, but also inspire me when I'm playing. Uh, and a lot of the visuals that, that we, we used, we did we did a video for Hall of Mirrors uh, in a, a big pool with all the TVs all piled up on top of each other. You can see that on YouTube. But um, a lot of, we lo- we used visuals, um, uh, old very old archive footage visuals, uh, and w- for that video broadcast on the TVs, we, and we use that as well. So. Um, yeah, lots of synths, lots of piano, lots of effects, lots of visuals. Well, there's only me up there, you know, you've got to entertain people somehow. <laughs> yeah. Oh, thanks so much, Neil. It's been great to chat to you. And Our pleasure. Yeah, I'll hopefully see you in Islington then in June. I'll great. I'll have to get down to that, yeah. Lovely. Lovely. Cheers, Neil. All right, thanks a lot. Headliner Radio, supporting the creative community.